Greetings, and welcome to the 80-Level Roundtable Podcast. In each episode, host Kirill Tokarev invites video game industry leaders to talk about the world of game development. No topic is off-limits as long as it relates to video game development. New episodes are in the works, so remember to follow us or subscribe and share with someone you know will also enjoy the podcast. This is 80 level uh, roundtable, and uh, today we have with us Gordon uh, Neal, who is, um, I guess, an aspiring 3D artist and who actually had a huge career in uh, PR and uh, 2D art and all the other interesting stuff. So, we're going to talk about the industry, uh, his uh, journey in this industry, and maybe touch upon some of the things connected with that along the way. So, Gordon, before we start, can you do like a little intro, talk a little bit about yourself, like where do you come from, what do you do, um, where did you study, that sort of thing. Cool, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, initially, thank you for having me on. Um, it's a real honor to be asked to, to come on this and talk with you guys. It's, uh, your website is definitely something that's kept me going through uh, the last couple of years for information in the industry. So uh, my thanks to you for, for having me on. Um, yeah, uh, me in general, uh, I had uh, a weird life before I got into this industry because I was working within um, an engineering firm uh, in Scotland, uh, in the UK. And uh, yeah, I, I had a, a job there, full-time job until I was 28 years old. Um, and then because I was a kind of avid uh, game collector or game player at the time, um, I used to delve into <clears throat> a lot of the making of DVDs or behind the scenes stuff um, and also the art books that came with those games. So that's how I kind of got on to uh, game art initially. And then uh, from there, I left my job at uh, 28, 29 years old, uh, went back to university in Scotland, studied at uh, UWS, um, University of West of Scotland, uh, and 3D animation and visual effects. Um, during my time there, um, I also went to some of my first networking events, which included industry workshops in 2016. Um, and I also had the privilege of interning at Axis Studios in Glasgow, um, which uh, was about the time they were working on Destiny 2, League of Legends trailers, um, uh, Happy, I think, for the, the Netflix series as well. So a couple of different projects, which gave me a real good insight into in the workings of studios. Um, since then, I've also worked with Red Essence Games. Um, I've done some 2D animation cells and fill-ins in-betweens for their game, Mask of Semblance. Um, I've run a podcast since 2016 called Digital Artcast, where we've interviewed uh, over 60 guests now from all around the world. Uh, some highlights would be people like uh, recently Jan Urschel and then also Scott Robertson, um, Glauco Longhi, a lot of different people um, and then, yeah, since then I've been freelancing, um, doing 3D art for various mediums, uh, recently uh, doing some 3D art from some clients overseas. And then on top of that, I'm also doing uh, just my own basic personal work, trying to break in the industry, um, still feeling out what I want to do. Um, but we can maybe touch on that later about, you know, my whole thinking behind that scene. And, uh, and yeah, just doing, you know, basic freelance stuff, getting uh, industry experience. And then I think most recently also a highlight was um, I got to attend Lightbox in L.A. Uh, back in September, 
where I also got to meet up with some of my overseas friends and tour studios like uh, Blizzard and Riot Games. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, that's like an a brief overview of me. Uh, cool. Thank you so much for this uh, introduction. So you mentioned that you were uh, a telecommunication engineer, as far as I understand. Um, yes. So how did you decide to make the switch into 3D? It just seems to me like not a a super safe career choice. <laughs> yeah, well, I think art in general is um, is getting like that. But I think in general, with the way the world is, most careers are getting like that because, um, you know, not just studios, but companies in general will uh, sometimes drop people at the, the kind of flick of a hat because, um, you know, profits are down or, or, you know, things aren't going their way. I know recently a couple of my friends... Um, who were working at some studios in Canada, um, you know, like the places like the mill and stuff recently closed. So, you know, it's kind of been hit everywhere. But yeah, for me, um, although I had a secure job, although I had good money at the time for what I was doing, um, I just didn't feel fulfilled in a, in a way, um, not even artistically, just career-wise. I didn't feel like I was really going anywhere. Um, my previous job had a, a saying in it, which was Dead Man's Shoes, where... I wouldn't really have ascended to uh, a greater skill set or uh, a higher echelon unless somebody either left the job ahead of me or died. So it was a it was a very um, it was a glass ceiling I hit very early in that company. Um, so I thought, you know, what way to better myself than involve myself in the industry I have a passion for, which was games. Um, but of course, along the way, I learned about uh, film, VFX, uh, TV production, all that kind of stuff. So. Um, 3D, uh, 3D was something that came from university. Um, although I kind of uh, didn't want to pursue 3D initially, I was very taken by 2D and concept um, and concept design. Um, I found the more I've, I've explored different avenues over the last year and a half since I graduated um, that I have a more natural affinity to 3D. Um, I think also because a lot of my mentors and people that I look up to or my friends, close friends are also capable 3D artists. So that um that's been something definitely that's that's inspired me. Um it's even more recently when, you know, I've I've, I've uh, bonded, you know, quite close or had a good relationship with uh, Rafael Grizetti and I know that he is uh, an exceptional 3D character artist as we all know and he's been really good at just guiding me and pointing me in certain directions when it comes to art um and just you know, mental preparation for studying. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how uh, my 3D path has, has, you know, evolved over the last six months uh, to a year. Um, I'm also very interested in the school that you mentioned. So you mm. kind of had to, had to go there and do like everything all over again. So mm. could you tell us a little bit more about your education? So what, where did you go? What did you do? Who mm. were your instructors? And I guess the general question connected with that is how important is like proper education for this field, like in your opinion? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. It, it's probably one that plagues every podcast and every interview I've ever watched. Um, it's been such a hot topic of debate, I think, because um, the online scene has exploded in the last five years. I know essentially when I left my job in 2011, 2012, um, you know, like ArtStation wasn't even a thing. Uh, there was a lot of websites that weren't even in existence. Um, a lot of the, the things I found early on were, were forms, things like conceptart.org and uh, some of the early practitioners of, of that art, because even concept art, concept design 
wasn't even really a thing uh, primarily, you know, a couple of years ago. It's only become a specified job in the last maybe even 10 years. And uh, yeah, but I know, you know, 3D's been around forever, of course. But yeah, uh, I think when I went to university, it was more just about approaching the way of learning that I, I probably function better when I have someone sit in front of me and, and they can uh, tutor me or instruct me one on one. I find that way of learning uh, a lot more efficient than doing online schooling. So for me, the choice was going to school because I, that was just the way I received information easily. Um, unfortunately, not a huge you know fault of the university I went to, but most, in fact, all of the guys who were teaching there were not uh, people who'd worked in the industry before. A lot of them had just you know done uh, academical routes, so they had left and done PhDs and research papers into their chosen field and then came back as instructors. Um, in fact, the guy who led the course, his major was in computer science. Um, so again, someone who hadn't worked uh, within the industry. In fact, only recently, the first year I attended, they were starting to train in Autodesk Maya, but even the year previous, they were using uh, Lightwave. Um, so it was it was a, a thing where they were constantly trying to catch up with themselves. And uh, luckily, I think the last year we were there, the last two years, um, they actually employed an ex-student who had worked at um, uh, a gaming company in Glasgow working on uh, a, a game at the time for Nintendo um, and then had been made redundant. So he came back into the fold to teach. So he actually had some experience. Um, so he was probably a, a kind of saving light at the end of that course because he could instruct us on some things that were relevant to the industry. Um, but I think it still was the staple of anything I would tell anybody now who goes to school is that you need to be doing work outside of class and doing your own personal projects as well as networking on your own accord because well a lot of people in the class were sometimes doing the bare minimum or you know spending their summers uh you know just chilling and, and not thinking about university i was either interning at companies or spending my money that the little money that i had from a part-time job to go to industry workshops to go to trojan horse and, and meet people uh from industry uh on the question of is education relevant to the fields that we work in um it depends on a lot of different variables i definitely would say one thing is if you're wanting to work overseas eventually um either in america or if you're in america you want to work in mainland europe um, a degree will be an essential piece uh, of paper to get you that visa that way into the country legally um but also it will serve as just a uh you know, I'd never think education is a waste of time. I always think there is some merit in education and always some way of being proud of what you've achieved. Um, but essentially, when you bear it down to the, you know, the bare bones, um, yeah, if your portfolio is strong enough, you will get work um, in any chosen field. If you're exceptionally good, um, then, of course, people will move you from country to country without, a, you know, a, a degree. Um, but then, of course, you're talking about the top one, five percent. Um, so if you're not really hitting that standard or that echelon, then of course, yeah, degree will help you move. But um, essentially, the, the the answer is no. You wouldn't need to have a formal education to work in the games industry. Um, but it is also helpful. It just it honestly just comes down to just to how you learn um, and how you feel comfortable um, learning. Yeah, I think the this question arises is uh, mostly because there is um, there is a lot of competition. Like yes. there's a lot of competition in uh, games in general, like mm -hmm. in any field, but there is, it seems like there is even more competition in art right now. Yes. Because, um, and as a listener of your podcast, you probably 
I probably kind of know that a lot of people are actually facing with this because whenever mm. like a new talent or anyone's going to art station and he sees mm. like, you know, rows and rows of like incredible art, yes. they kind of feel a little bit of intimidating mm. and um, intimidated, right? And yes. uh, they kind of want to have some security, right? So they want to go to school and feel mm. that maybe school will give them the necessary edge sort of like to fight through and to figure it out. But mm-hmm. maybe that's not where they should be looking for. Maybe they should be more concentrated on, I don't know, like mentorships or mm-hmm. doing tutorials on their own or yeah. getting that kind of like professional help in terms of like 3D art and so on in other sources, right? Because yeah. as you mentioned, schools are schools and they are structured in a particular way than it's more like a science kind of like thing, right? So you need to do yeah. like PhD and you need to do, mm. write articles and mm-hmm. it's not really research in terms of like technical research. And it's yeah. not really, it's very hard to kind of connect with all the pipelines that are currently in mm-hmm. development. Mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering, what do you think about that? Like, what is the good way to sort of like progress in this? And uh, not to be discouraged, right, when you're going to places like where a lot of uh, others' portfolios are published. Yeah, I think it's a good question as well because I definitely know that what I suffered from early on um, was just the overwhelming amount of work on ArtStation was top tier, especially when now recently games are launched and then, you know, post-game launch, people will have the art dump, you know, on uh, ArtStation where everybody just, you know, dumps their art on ArtStation of the project they worked on. I mean, most recently it was uh, Ghost of Tsushima. So a lot of the the stuff that was developed by Sucker Punch was was dumped on a couple of weeks after the game launched. And uh, and yeah, it's, it's very intimidating, I think, excuse me, going on as a, a young student and then uh, seeing those artworks and, and trying to then find some meaning as to well, where do I fit in, you know, within this structure, like where will my art shine through? And I think for me, the thing I've always focused on is trying just to stand above um, or do things that people weren't typically doing at the time. I mean, for me, uh, the podcast was definitely one of those things I felt that, that separated me and gave me a name in the industry even before I started working. Um, you know, even when I left university, I was working on my first ever indie game and doing 2D animation and, and sketching. But, you know, I could have been anybody at that point, you know, but the podcast obviously was one thing that was connecting me to other people, was getting me known throughout the industry. So I think things that will stand you above and beyond um, will always be helpful to make you look as a more impressionable hire or someone that you would want a company to invest in. I know one of my friends, Jason Hill, a couple of years ago when he had a kind of uh, low down period between jobs, uh, he designed uh, the female Hanzo from Overwatch. So he done a, a gender kind of end on Hanzo from Overwatch and done a female version. And then that was put up in, on ArtStation, you know, to great accord. And people were obviously losing their minds thinking it was a great piece, but that obviously got him noticed. Um, I know when, you know, I eventually left university and I was even still thinking about working on things like Hearthstone and doing 2D uh, illustration, i done a challenge where um, I spent 30 days uh, studying uh, a Hearthstone card every single night, and then uh, I would upload it to ArtStation, and that eventually got uh, the attention of some of the guys at Blizzard who actually contacted me about uh, the illustrations I was doing, and uh, and, and then, then they got in touch with the podcast because they also wanted to be guests. So 
um yeah it's a really weird feeling i think going into any industry especially this one where um your artwork is like your portfolio especially is, is so much of what people look at so anything you can do to stand above uh you know everybody else on that that website will help you on the long run you know whether it's a blog or a podcast or you know making youtube videos um anything that will separate you from the pack is always going to be handy although to flip that um the conversation we had not too long ago with a couple of guys in the industry was about you know how there's probably thousands of people in this industry that work every day um go into offices do work for a game and then go home you know but they don't have a blog they don't have a youtube channel they don't have anything that makes them stand above they just have a really solid work ethic and a really good set of skills and a portfolio so um you can do both if you if you work hard enough and long enough and you have some connections you probably will find work eventually but then i think the networking and uh standing above just gets you there quicker so if you're looking for you know work immediately after you leave university or you know within at least a year then doing projects personal projects especially that will make you stand out um are great especially things like ArtStation because you know ArtStation now has ArtStation challenges so um even if you take part in them most likely a lot of the guys that either won first prize or second prize the top three at least um i know usually typically get job offers from companies so um that's also a great way just to to get involved in the community but also to stand above everybody else so i guess you kind of touched on the next question that i had is how do you actually look for work so it seems that um you don't actually look for work but you just you know be active and you do something and you take part in different competitions and you publish yep. and so on and the work sort of kind of finds you right mm -hmm. so you get connected but uh does this approach work for everyone or do you actually need to go to you know places like art station places like mm -hmm. 80 level and 80 level rfp or mm -hmm. some other uh, job boards maybe mm -hmm and just try to pitch around and try to maybe just go to the website of the company and try mm. to pitch yourself. Does that approach work or do they just disregard everything? Because um, I have talked with a lot of recruiters as well mm -hmm. and um, they have like different uh, kind of opinions on this. So I'm just interested, yeah. what's your take on it? Yeah, I think when it comes to portfolio, especially I know when... I was uh, kind of stationed at Axis working there. Um, I had a small stint working with the guys from recruitment. So I was kind of seeing on a daily basis what they were looking for from people uh, portfolio-wise and what they were kind of looking for on ArtStation and, and various other websites. Um, depending on what your discipline is, people will seek you out in different locations. I mean, ArtStation isn't the, the only place that you can post and find work for the industry. Um, but typically what I saw is that um, a lot of times studios will probably seek out particular people, um, mostly at senior level, because you'll find that a lot of people who are, are junior and looking for work or their first stint in the industry, you know, they'll probably get, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of junior applications every day where people want to get work um, either working for free or experience or, or, uh, or junior artists. But then the senior guys are the guys that um, companies will typically seek out because they're a lot harder to find. They're either already stationed in companies or they've got their own set up freelance. Um, so when it comes to work, you can do the thing that I did, which is 
you would go around uh, networking events and you would find people, connect with them, and then probably get opportunities through the people you know. But also, uh, if people make uh, amazing portfolios and display them well enough, so, you know, you're displaying your stuff on, you know, DeviantArt, ArtStation, Facebook, Instagram, stuff like that, people will find you um, regardless. Um, it, it just depends on how you feel you want to approach work. If there's even like a specific job or company you want to work for, say, for instance, Blizzard, you would obviously try and tailor a portfolio to that company and then try and contact them um, because that is like your dream company. And then if, you know, for whatever instance, you know, if you get a job at Blizzard, hooray, fantastic, you've made it. But if, you know, Blizzard for whatever reason didn't want you at that time, then you probably find that the art style you developed for Blizzard will also be applicable to several other companies because as Blizzard have obviously grown in strength and numbers throughout the years, they've also inspired a lot of smaller studios to make games of similar calibers or of similar art styles. So if you're, style doesn't work for one particular studio like blizzard then you'll probably find there are other companies who will adapt that style and take you on because you know maybe not as big a caliber as blizzard or, or don't have the same kind of budget so they're looking for more free work or people volunteering um so there's several ways to uh, approach when it comes to finding work but i genuinely find the more people i've spoke to they've said just focus on making a good portfolio and then people will come to you for work yeah, makes sense. So I have another question. So when you are, let's say that you landed your job in Blizzard and mm -hmm. you're happy, but you know, sometimes goes by and you kind of want to progress, right? So mm -hmm. you want a promotion or you want mm -hmm. like a bigger project or whatever. Mm -hmm. So what's happening at that point? Like, how do you make this jump like from, uh, let's say, junior mid to senior? Mm -hmm. And uh, even when you're senior, mm -hmm. what do you think is going to happen? Because mm, I'll share my thoughts about this uh, after mm -hmm. this, but I would love to hear what you think. Most people I've spoke to who will try to progress in companies, it usually goes um, a similar route to a lot of people who want to progress in any company, not just within games. But you would typically look to be more of an asset to the team, um, whether that would be when you're presented with challenges that you can overcome or you have an opportunity to lead um, some part of a team or lead even just part of a project, that can be a good opener for people to then discuss, you know, if you want to seek other avenues or you want to maybe be promoted. Um, also, if you're kind of killing the game outside of your work, like if you're doing like a ton of professional work, but then also coming home at night and finishing off a lot of um, a lot of personal projects, um, that are getting, you know, like rave reviews and, and, you know, they're getting featured on websites, then of course you're probably going to start to get counter offers from other companies who are like, you know, we really love what you're doing. We know you're tied to this, you know, X company, but we want you to come work for Y. We're willing to offer you an incentive of this much money or, you know, this opportunity or this position. So that's one way. One way is personal work. And of course, reaching out, um, well, not reaching out, but putting your things out there for people to see and then people reaching out to you. Um, the other way, like I said, is, is just opportunities for leadership within companies. So if there is a particular part, you know, and you have been proving yourself because a lot of these opportunities won't come, you know, out of the blue. They'll be maybe after months and months of hard work and, you know, maybe staying late and people above you who are seniors see that and, and take notice of it. You can maybe approach them one day during a lunch or even in a casual environment and say, you know, I'd be really uh, excited to try and, and, and maybe try something different or approach a like a full character scan or something that I haven't, you know, done before. Do you think that would be possible? And of course, I think a lot of people in this industry always want to see 
artists grow so a lot of times you will probably all find people will be like yeah that's that's great we can talk about you maybe doing xyz character or doing xyz weapon and then see how you do with that um but then it'll be like oh maybe you have to come in on the weekend and finish it or stay a bit later one night to try and get some extra stuff done um those opportunities always present good avenues into senior mids uh any way you want to move up um but yeah i think that's probably the two main things the one is that you're a superstar outside of your work and people are taking notice and then giving you opportunities in other companies or um, you're doing things internally in the team that are making you an asset to that team and people will want to keep you so they'll reward your loyalty and hard work with uh, moving you up. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, the things that I heard is that um, basically artists want to progress like any um, person in a big corporation right they want to get a promotion they want more responsibility they want like a bigger project and what happens is usually the best way to do this is to get an offer like from another company basically so that's why it's very difficult to kind of retain uh, great talent in one studio and not to let them kind of flock around from one company to the other yeah. But um, I also have another question is, why mm -hmm. do you think uh, artists tend to still work for corporations, like bigger companies, and mm -hmm. why don't they start their own businesses? That's an interesting one. Yeah, I think in general as well, because I think even people who work for corporations they are essentially small businesses or contractors. I mean, you probably find a lot of people who work for big corporations like Blizzard um, will initially start as contractors. So they'll start on six-month contract, year contracts. And then from there, um, maybe after they've been with the company for a while, they'll be like, cool, here's a full-time position that you can now move into. Um, but then it always it's more a thing, I think, that comes down to personal preference. I know... You know, again, just using Blizzard as an example, I know when I went and talked to a lot of people there, a lot of them... Uh, who work there, or a lot of people who work there still were there because the company afforded equal opportunities or they afforded, you know, the means to move up really quickly or, you know, they just liked the atmosphere. They felt the management was friendly. Um, I know particularly Blizzard has been going through some things just now, so maybe not the best example, but I think even people I know who work at other companies who've been there for a while, um, they probably just want to invest time and money into the brand or, or the franchise and, and see it through. Um, I know a lot of guys maybe start on like the first game in a series and maybe want to see it all the way through to the end, maybe stay there because they have a vision that they want to help uh, achieve. So that might be one reason. The other reason might be that people are just simply just comfortable where they are and they enjoy the work, they enjoy the atmosphere, they don't really want to move. Um, you know, maybe they have commitments where they have to stay within their state or their, or their, their nation and they can't actually move. So th there could be various reasons, but I think generally people stay with companies um, because they feel a family aesthetic. They feel like they really know the people who work there and they want to be around friendly faces from day to day. You probably find a lot of the guys who move are people who are super ambitious and want to obviously rise up really quickly and work on multiple projects. Um, I think that's also why a lot of outsourcing studios are now becoming super popular because a lot of artists who work in those studios can work within one year can work on maybe 12 to 15 maybe 20 projects and have their names attached to every single one of them um, and if they're all particularly high quality then of course that opens the doors for even more ascension into the industry and higher echelons of management or direction 
Um, I know I was just speaking to Finian recently, who's just opened Terraform Studios, and you know he was saying the same that after years of working on different projects, he wanted to try and create an opportunity for somewhere for people to learn and grow, um, and work on multiple projects at the same time, um, and get to do a variety of different stuff. So there are varying reasons, but um, it can go from anything from being comfortable to just uh, want to have a vision and finish that through a franchise. Yep, yep. I kind of understand that kind of uh, approach. Uh, mm-hmm. But still, there are examples of uh, artists kind of starting their own. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's always exciting to kind of have a look at those games. So I think one of the um, biggest examples right now is the Mortal Shell game, which mm. is heavily like, I, I think Vitaly Bulgarov is uh, behind it. And uh, he has like an yes. amazing... Uh, an amazing list of artists who worked on this uh, yes. title. Um, do you think that an artist can actually build uh, a great game? Or do you think we'll still need like a proper programmer to kind of fit everything together? Because games mm-hmm. are such a weird uh, medium, right? But mm-hmm. it feels to me that uh, when you're building a game, you still have to have the like two leaders, like you can't have just one. So usually it's a little bit uh, a programmer, like a very good engineer, and at the same mm-hmm. time a very good artist. So mm-hmm. like um, a good example would be like Super Meat Boy. Because right. Super Meat Boy, they had a very cool tandem there. And then the one guy was kind of like doing the story and all that quirky stuff. And the mm-hmm. other guy was doing very precise um, mathematician kind of, wonders with uh with their control systems and that's right. why the controls in the game feel so so good so i in my opinion it's always kind of like a combination right um but as i think as the tools becoming more accessible and there will mm-hmm. be you know stuff like mega scans and all those mm-hmm. other tools becoming just you know you can now download a bunch of textures you can yeah. download assets you can buy stuff on mm-hmm. marketplace which is which is not going to cost you like a lot and you yes. can start building but mm-hmm. um do you still need to know like a little bit of a programming do you still need to have a person on your team who is uh you know well into this kind of like you know beautiful mind kind of thing and he needs yeah. to understand like all the little specifics or do you think art right now is enough and just having a, a good kind of good style, good characters, um, mm. atmosphere? Is this enough to actually build a game? Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting question when it comes to game development because if you speak to different people, you'll get different answers. And I think that's what I love about this industry is that there's such a wide variety of people doing different stuff all the time. Uh, on the case of Mortal Shell, I mean, I've actually been trying to get Vitaly on the podcast for a while now, and um, I think I'm, I'm edging ever closer to that happening, thank God. But um, even just the other night, I was listening to him talk to Raphael Grosetti because, you know, Raph's been interviewing a lot of character guys on his podcast now, on his channel on YouTube um, during lockdown. And Vitaly was talking about, you know, a lot of the early stuff from Mortal Shell he'd done up, you know, by himself. There was no real team involved. You know, he maybe hired a couple of people on the side helping him you know, remotely, but then when, you know, when he started to see that there was something there to build, there was a, a, a game behind all this stuff, you know, he started handing it off to programmers and other people um, because you're also dealing with a medium, especially when it comes to those types of games like Dark Souls, you're dealing with uh, 3D movement, camera tracking, uh, you know, input animation, uh, hit markers, a lot of stuff that 
you can't do because it's it's behind a technical wall that you don't really have time to invest in. Um, although I think there is companies trying now at this point to then merge those gaps between technical ability and artistic ability. Um, Max Berman, for instance, who runs Kitbash, um, they've just launched their Kitbash 4.0. So they guys are now trying to make sure that when you download their kits, it's very easy just to drag and drop those into something like Unreal because they're, now they're just like with Kitbash 4.0, those kits are now game ready. So you can just drag those into Unreal and you can use them as game ready assets and build cities very, very quickly um, and easily. So there is that that ease coming into the, the industry where you, if you have an idea and you have enough time and patience, you can build something. On the flip side, um, <clears throat> if you're building a more story-driven game and you're, you know, your, your vision for the game is more artistically uh, storytelling rather than combat or something like that, you know, a lot of point-and-click adventures early on were built off a lot of heavy 2D art. So a lot of those ones weren't really relying on 3D mechanics or fighting styles. It was simply just art that moved between two parallel tracks. Um, I know a lot of people recently who worked on <clears throat> the Beneath a Steel Sky um sequel that just came out um, i'm sure the name is very obvious but i forget exactly what it is but yeah a lot of the guys who worked in that um it was a very heavy 2d game or, or, or you know there was 3d elements but there was a lot of art in between that that didn't require a lot of programming so you know there's it really comes down to what type of game you're trying to make or what story you're trying to tell um if anything is more story driven it can exist in a 3d space you know we've had the last of us 2 recently um which is a 3D game that involves, you know, heavy combat at times. But of course, that whole game has required a whole combat system and 3D animation. Um, but then you've got other games, you know, you talked like Super Meat Boy, which are heavily 2D based again, or Dead Cells again that came out recently. Um, you know, even the DuckTales remaster. There's a lot of stuff that relies less on mechanics and more on art. Um, so I think the balance always comes with stuff like Dark Souls. It will have an artistic license, of course, because those games are very gothic or very drenched in uh, art direction and, and, and mystical kind of energies. But then a lot of the early point and click adventures were just 2D paintings that moved from left to right um, and didn't require a whole ton of programming. Of course, there was programming behind it for, for interactions. But, you know, I think a lot of those uh, early point and click adventure games that I grew up on were very, very art-based and i think that's why i love them also very story-based uh, uh, which is also why i love them so yeah i think the, the the approach will always come down to what type of game or what type of experience um you're trying to make yeah totally totally this makes sense um and probably i have the last question before we're basically running out of time is mm -hmm. um where do you think this industry is going and um where do you think it's going to be like in five years, let's say? So mm. do we are we going to see more VR games? Are there going to be more AR games? Mm. Are there going to be, I don't know, like uh, more affordable engines out there? Or mm -hmm. will, um, you know, will Unreal Engine dominate or will Unity dominate? Like what, what, what do you think is going to happen? It's, it's kind of hard sometimes because, again, I think I'm more speaking about this behind a consumer mentality than a game developer mentality. I mean, I know I've worked on a couple of games recently, but a lot of the stuff I've not had a heavy hand in. Uh, probably the heaviest hand I had was when I was working on Mask of Semblance with Red Essence Games. And at that time, you know, Nick was trying to do something really uh, unique where, you know, the whole game was built around um, a 2D uh, engine that 
would run off Unity, but then the whole game and the appeal of that game was that it was hand-drawn. You know, every cell was hand-animated. So, you know, that in itself was a unique approach and something that hadn't been done for a while, so it was going to obviously stand above. But then, of course, uh, years and years ago, Unreal was something you had to pay for. Um, There was a paywall or a barrier behind it. So if you didn't have the funds, you couldn't even start to build your game. But now, most recently, uh, apart from Unreal being free for a long time, and Epic obviously now giving away um, a load of games for free, um, they're also announcing uh, or have announced when they uh, unveiled Unreal Engine 5 that they're going to now make it so that the first million dollars the companies earn they get to keep and you know not a penny has to go to to epic or unreal so in that essence they're opening the door even further for people to get involved in their engine because you know they've got an incentive now for for developers to keep a lot of their funds and their money uh, early on in, in, in the development um so yeah you'll probably find that that side of it is probably going to open up because unreal will just get so usable um and so easy to integrate into different different situations that people will use it more and more on the flip side you know vr although it hasn't probably taken off in in games the way that a lot of people, I think, thought it was going to, it has had a resurgence recently with uh, Half-Life Alex. So, of course, that game coming out um, was a love letter to Half-Life fans and, of course, um, an investment in the future tech of VR. And I think when Gabe was getting interviewed, he was talking about the potential he sees for VR in the future. Although it might not play play a huge prominent part in games, it's definitely playing a bigger part than I think people did think it was going to play. So I think you will probably will see VR being more integrated into um, the household stuff like Xbox and PlayStation. Um, Although I think that transition and that integration will take a lot more years than people think. Probably another 10 years before we get to the point where the tech is cheap enough and light enough that everybody will have it as part of the console experience. It'll be like a controller. It'll be second nature to people. Um, but yeah, I think games in general are just going to keep expanding. And I think as the limitations of graphical things you know, become non-existent, you're probably going to have things that are more focused on storytelling and interactions with players um, as opposed to graphical fidelity or you know, the size of maps or the size of worlds. It'll be more about the 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 crafted experience you have within that world and how it relates to a player um you know I, I think years ago one of the best consoles was the xbox 360 and i think mostly behind the name because the console was called called the 360 because the console revolved around the, the player and i think that's something that a lot of companies recently have now taken on and, and looked into you know that they really need to start paying attention and taking care of their player base and making sure that they are facilitating their needs or they're going to lose them to the rival competitions. I mean, I know recently, although it was a total, you know, move that 343 needed to do because they wanted to take more time with Halo, with them delaying Halo, of course, from the Xbox Series X launch, it now puts a question, will people probably pre-order PlayStation 5 more because a lot of people were going to buy Xbox because of Halo, and now that exclusive's gone, is that now going to be an incentive to move to PlayStation? So you've got these things where people are, you know, the 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 chess pieces are moving in the game wars uh, constantly. Um, of course, us as PC master race don't really care much of the time because we get the scraps thrown at us of the console guys eventually. But um, yeah, I think the gaming space will probably evolve as it always has. Um, but I think especially in the next couple of years, you're going to see less change in graphics and more change in experiences. I think players will be at the center of those experiences and I think story will be, a lot more prominent in the forefront, um, you know, moving forward. And, of course, with online experiences, you've got a lot of people 
who knew, uh, you know, working a lot of these free-to-play games like Fortnite and Apex Legends. So, you know, there's a whole market now for free-to-play online combat shooters that are kind of taking over the world. So, yeah, the gaming scape will always evolve, um, but I think it looks positive in this day and age. I think it's going to be something that's going to, we're going to look back in, in five, ten years and and think about what I'll, uh, a fortunate time we live in to experience what we can just now. Yeah, cannot not agree with you. Well, awesome. Gordon, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it was mm-hmm. a pleasure having you on a roundtable. Um, and uh, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Yes, thank you so totally. much. You too. Thanks for enjoying another episode of the 80 Level Roundtable podcast. Check out upcoming episodes on the 80 Level website at 80.lv. Join our career site at 80.lv slash RFP and share our podcast with friends and on your social networks.